right, what is up, everybody? Welcome to the show. Whether you're listening to Living Lean or the Mind Muscle Connection, um, we are stoked y'all are here. So today it is myself, Jeremy Bear, Jeff Hain, and Brandon Cruz. We're just going to be running a roundtable Q&A type episode today. So I'm stoked to get into this, guys. Me too, man. I'm uh, looking forward to it. This is the first time I've done any sort of roundtable. Uh, so... Yeah, I'm looking forward to it and obviously chatting with you guys. You guys are both on my podcast a lot, so everybody's familiar with you. And I know I've been on yours a couple times too, Jeremiah. And so, yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is going to be a great uh, opportunity because all three of us are friends. uh, So we're able to link up and now really share some ideas as well as go over some questions because usually it's myself on Jeremiah's podcast or myself on Jeff's or, or vice versa. So this will be good to get all three of us on uh, similar topics and just exchange ideas and, and really get some feedback to our audience. Absolutely. And I think we're good without the introductions. I feel like both of you are on my podcast. Brandon, I basically feel like my podcast is also your podcast. <laughs> um, I appreciate it, brother. We always have, you know what? Our podcast just went out this morning and it's funny. I've already been getting good feedback on it. So that's always appreciated from the audience. And I think we have a couple more topics to dive into besides this today coming soon so i'm looking forward to that let me Absolutely. let me get one more thing in here real quick before we go on plus last time i think i don't think it was the last time i had brandon on but he started calling me jeremiah so you know <laughs> we're kind of all intertwined i guess now it's a family affair yeah <laughs> <laughs> all right brandon you want to kick us off with the first question you got Yeah, absolutely. So this was uh, more of a broad-based question. Um, I had someone ask me about my thoughts or our thoughts on junk volume, how we would define it, um, how to know if they're doing it first and foremost, and then also what are our recommendations in terms of how many sets would we recommend to avoid junk volume? And I actually followed back up with this individual because I wanted to know, are you talking weekly sets or were they talking like a set within a session? And they ended up going with um, a set within a session. So I thought I would just open this up and my thoughts on junk volume, uh, and then I'll, I'll open it up to you guys. And um, I see junk volume. This is actually something I speak with a lot of my clients about because I tend to work with a lot of advanced trainees. And with that, we have this perception that we need to continually be doing more and more and more the more advanced we get. But a lot of times what people don't consider is that our ability to enact an adequate stimulus becomes better over time. So as we become more advanced, we become stronger, we're able to, and our exercise execution and selection, we're able to enact a better stimulus on the muscle. So in turn, if you're just continually ramping up volume, you're also incurring a lot of systemic fatigue. So for me, what I try to get across to clients and with other individuals is to me, junk volume is any amount of training you do that isn't actually, you know, doesn't actually provide a benefit in terms of either building muscle we're gaining strength. So it's basically just additional work that's done, but doesn't confer like any noticeable or tangible benefit. So I honestly see this as like a waste of time and effort as you're literally doing more and more, but you're getting little to nothing in return. And I try to break this down in a couple categories because I don't just see it as sets, although sets is a form of junk volume. So Mm -hmm. I see this could be as anything like doing an excessive amount of sets in a single workout. So this is like most common in those that follow like a bro split where they'll stack a ton of volume for one body part in a single workout. And what we have to realize is our muscles can only tolerate and benefit from so much volume, you know, via hard sets. That's how I would measure volume uh, in a single training session, which can range from say 
three to 10 sets per muscle per session, in my opinion. And that actually is pretty confirmed by the research. Um, so for example, like James, I know James Krieger did uh, a few years ago, did an in-house meta-analysis, which looked at the impact of sets per muscle group per training session on specifically hypertrophy outcomes. So we're not talking strength. We're just talking about building muscle. What he found was there was a noticeable benefit with each set that was added up to six sets. So from one to six sets, we saw this linear benefit. And then from around six to 10 sets, and then there's also some research, like singular research that shows up to 12 sets per muscle, there wasn't a linear benefit to doing more after those 12 sets per session. So you start seeing hypertrophy outcomes actually start going down. And at that amount of sets per session, we see less results in terms of muscle growth. So how I try to conceptualize this, because I do have a lot of individuals that are advanced that come to me that follow a bro split and they're following, you know, Brad Schoenfeld's recommendations of 20 sets or more per week, but they're doing it in a single session. So say you are doing 20 sets per session on a larger muscle group, like quads, in my opinion, you're probably incurring some junk volume at that point, which is going to cause no more of a stimulus, but it is going to cause more fatigue, which you then have to recover from. So this is where, you know, I kind of say that six to 10 sets should be really where we're aiming for in a singular session per muscle group, because beyond that, you're going to be accumulating more fatigue where you're going to have to recover. And personally, this is actually something, it actually hasn't come out yet, but Jeff and I just did a podcast recently and I covered how I train and how I, I dose, I use a higher frequency approach because say myself or a client does need 20 sets for quads per week. I'd rather divide that up to say two to four sessions where we can get a higher quality stimulative um, simulation through sets than doing them all in one day and getting into that realm of junk volume. And then a couple other categories of junk volume that I generally see or that I notice is like sets done too far away from failure and then also super high rep sets. So I'm just, in my mind, I kind of look at it as there's this stimulus fatigue ratio. And often we talk about that in context of an exercise selection, but I see that even in dosing of volume in terms of if you're doing something that's only incurring more fatigue, especially in a singular session, you're kind of digging that ditch where now your rates of muscle protein synthesis are only getting you back to baseline. They're, all your recovery capacity is going, or in all your resources, all your energy is just going to get you to get out of that ditch, to get back to baseline, rather than having you super compensate and actually get a benefit from it. So what do you guys think? I'll go, yeah, I'll go real quick. No, I, I, I agree. I think uh, you hit on it. I think, you know, the doing too many sets in one session is a big one. And, and you sort of hit on this one too. Like you kind of talked about it where you said not taking your sets close to failure. I think that that's a big one because it kind of goes hand in hand with what you just said too. Like when you don't take sets close to failure, you kind of get that feeling that you can do more. So you end up like doing a ton of work. And mm -hmm. you're kind of wasting your time, right? Because you could, if you would take those sets closer to failure, and again, we're not saying take it to failure, but you know, I think some people think they're like two to three RAR is actually really like a like six RAR, right? And so, like you could Absolutely. get a couple, you could get a couple more reps out of that and, and make your training more efficient. And I kind of made a post on this today where I feel like the quality of training is a big thing there, and too many people focus on quantity, like trying to do more and more when they they forget to focus on that quality. And you, I guarantee you, you could probably cut your training by 25%, if not 50%, if you focus more on that quality. And then the second one that I was wanted to bring up real quick, uh, was the sets, like you said, super high rep sets, like, so like higher than 30 and then set, uh, sets lower than five reps too, because like 
again, those, both of those are, they're not like you're completely wasting your time, but they're probably not super efficient when it comes to building muscle, right? We know that probably lower than five reps is going to put a lot of stress on your joints, um, tendons, and you're not really going to get that good hypertrophy stimulus. And then anything more than like 20 to 30, it's like, you're just doing a lot of stuff that isn't super, uh, stimulative either. So that would kind of be on top of what Brandon said, those would be like my two things that I would want to add to, um, jump volume. Yeah, I think you guys nailed it. One other thing I think can play a factor here. Two other things. One, I do think there is like, I think when we hear now, I would say like, if we're looking at this on a session by session basis, it's pretty damn rare that you're going to want to go over 12 sets per muscle group. I think more like if we're looking at this on a weekly basis, there is like a good bit more variability there. And I also think that something that somewhat impacts this is the movements that you're doing and whether they're going to overload the tissue more in the lengthened position or the shortened position. So like, for example, we compare and contrast like a leg extension versus a hack squat, right? That hack squat's really gonna overload the lengthened, which is gonna be a lot more stimulative but it's also going to incur a lot more fatigue. So within that, and like I've also heard people theorize, like typically people's backs can handle a little bit more volume or need a little bit of volume potentially to grow. And again, like of course this is going to vary by individual, but like a lot of times the back may need a little bit more volume to grow because typically it's harder to really overload that lengthened position when we're doing like those pulling movements. So I do think like there is going to be some variability there as well as far as your exercise selection. But I really think you guys nailed it. Like if we're following a smart program, which typically is going to include a decent amount of movements that are overloading the length of position. Um, I think like right around that absolute max around 12 sets per muscle group is probably the upper limit for a training day. No, Jeremy, I love that you hit on the uh, positions, especially because like you did, you did hit on exactly when initially when you brought that up about quads, the first thing I thought about was back because Myself and, and a lot of my clients, that's what we notice to be able to tolerate the most amount of volume. Not only is it a large mm-hmm. muscle group that encompasses a lot of areas and a lot of tissue, but like you mentioned, it's hard to get in that lengthened position. So actually something that I've been doing uh, as of recently, this is something I've went in back and forth with a, a buddy of mine that I know you guys know, Brian Borstein, is um, lengthened overload movements. So just doing parcels in that lengthened position, because think about it, a lap pull down, a row, all these things are... Um, you know, we're getting them in a shortened position and they're overloaded. You know, we have the greatest potential for hypertrophy in that lengthened position, which is why a squat for the most part is more stimulative than would be a leg extension. And so when we look at how we bias different portions of the muscle or different movements, that's where we are able to kind of stretch things. If we're doing a lot of shortened overload movements, then we could, you know, accumulate a little bit more volume per session. Rather than if you're doing all, you know, length and overload movements, you might need to be within that three to six rep max. And then also when we look at the literature and it does suggest three to 10 sets, and there's even a Dama study that went up to 12 sets that showed that, um, I believe they did 12 versus eight sets, if I remember correctly, and 12 sets led to greater increases in muscle protein synthesis. But we have to take into consideration, these are intermediate trainees. So if we bring that to an advanced level, these guys are going to be training harder or most likely harder. So that might be 10, you know, or that might be 12 because they have more of a threshold. So it's really, it's person dependent. We have to take that in consideration. But if I was to give a broad recommendation, yeah, I would say three to 10 sets and maybe 12 sets, depending on your movement selection, depending on your proximity to failure, 
uh, depending on your training experience, and then how you lay things out. What is your total volume for the week? So if you're someone that is doing 30 sets per week and you're doing 12 sets every session or 30 plus sets per week and doing 12 sets every session, that's going to accumulate a lot of fatigue systemically across the the uh, totality of the week. So we have to take that into consideration. Whereas if you're training 12 sets and you're just doing it once per week, you're going to have more time in that recovery course or in that recovery timeline. So there's a lot of things to take in consideration, but I hope this, uh, this kind of answered that individual's question. Well, yeah. I don't think I have anything else to add. Uh, no, I, I, I think one more thing I just want to add real quick. I think that if anything, I would always caution on at least in the beginning of like, a mesocycle or like the beginning of a new training program, like I feel like you can't go wrong with starting a little bit lower and then getting this data and over time kind of fine tuning it. Cause I think you can't overthink it to where it's like, Oh crap, do I need to do? And really you just have to do it and like get started and then get that data and, and adjust. Right. And, and you'll figure out like, you know, this exercise beats me up a little bit more than that one. And I think over time you get better at figuring out what that is for you. But I don't think you can ever I think starting a little bit, lower on that like volume and then going up over time, I don't think is ever a, a bad way to go about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Who wants to go next with a question? Um, yeah. So mine isn't a question, Brandon, we had talked about this and, and we, we talked about this off air. Uh, I wanted to kind of bring up a study that came out recently. I think it was from Willis. So it was about like physical activity and total daily energy expenditure. Um, and really it's, talking about the uh, constrained energy model. And so I know, Brandon, we were going to talk about it. So I didn't know if you had anything that you wanted to like kind of say about it first. Uh, and then, and then, yeah, we'll, we'll kind of dive into whatever conversation this sparks up. Yeah. So this was a study, uh, I believe it came out a few months ago, but it's, it's fairly recent. Um, and it basically looked at that new energy compensation model. And essentially what that is, is the compensation for calories we spend on exercise and what they looked at specifically was how does that relate to a person's state of energy balance? So when someone is either in a calorie deficit, they're at maintenance, or they're at surplus of calories. And what they really have seen in, there's only been a few studies on this specific topic. And actually, the, the last one you and I discussed on one of your podcasts, Jeff. Um, but what we, we tend to see in this small line of literature is that energy expenditure and compensation varies a ton between individuals. So on average, you know, we see that we only compensate about 28%. So for every hundred calories that we burn, we net 72 calories essentially, but that was done in these models on a deficit. So really what this study was doing was looking at how the constrained model and the additive model compared when someone was in an energy deficit as compared to when they're eating at maintenance, you know, so they're at energy balance or in a state of uh, like positive energy balance, which would be a surplus. And, you know, if my memory serves me correct, it was, it was a pretty large cohort. It was like 600 people or, or maybe a little bit more than that. And they measured their total daily energy expenditure via doubly labeled water. And also they, they tracked their activity using accelerometers. So this was pretty accurate in terms of their assessments on these things. They really wanted to see how much of this compensation does occur. Is it 28% across the board? Or there were some estimates that I want to say it was like in some obese individuals, it was 50 plus percent or 49%. And so what they saw was for those eating at maintenance or in a surplus of calories, the additive model worked better than the constrained model. So the degree of compensation when you're in a state of either neutral or positive energy balance isn't large. Um, and this is actually one of the main reasons why 
whenever I've spoken about energy flux, I'm never talking about it in context of a deficit. I always say that I want people to eat more and move more as it's a more effective way of maintaining a lean and healthy body composition and body weight. So I've done podcasts with, with Jeff about this and many others. And Jeremiah was in person at a presentation that I did on this. And, you know, I always say that this is better for a maintenance of a lean physique rather than trying to get, if you're already in a deficit, you're already having your total daily energy expenditure downregulated. So doing more activity, you're still going to be compensating. Um, and this study actually reinforced that because they showed that when participants were in an energy deficit, the constrained model where it showed compensation works better to describe what they were seeing. So I think you know, one thing that I know Jeff and I have talked about previously is that a lot of people look at this energy compensation model and a lot of the work that Herman Ponser has done on the constrained energy model. And they see, they kind of look at this in this nihilistic viewpoint and they look at it as an excuse or a reason to look at exercise as being pointless because it's not, you know, burning as many calories as they thought. And this is something that when the constrained energy model first came out and started being discussed, you know, I've been saying since day one that I don't think it applies to like athletes and most of the clients that, that we're working with, um, especially those that are training hard, they're fueling their training, which is why having higher levels of energy expenditure than many of the sedentary, untrained, you know, overweight populations that these studies are looking at isn't really applicable to who we're working with. You know, a lot of the, the Herman Ponser research, these are done in Hadza tribes that are, you know, they're hunter gatherers. So it's, it's a different, they're already in a state of low energy availability. So I always had a hard time believing, you know, and, and I don't want to say believing, but always had a hard time extrapolating the data that was being put out by these studies and applying it to others, you know, especially those that I work with, because if there was this massive compensation for exercise, then I wouldn't be able to see like, for instance, females of mine eating three to 400 grams of carbohydrates. And, and I have guys eating six to 800 grams of carbs, uh, carbs and eating plenty of calories, yet they're maintaining their weight and body comp due to their high levels of physical activity. And they're living a high energy flux lifestyle because if energy compensation was that um, strong and was that prominent in all, all genres and all populations, then you know, it would lower someone's, you know, calorie output to the point that these, these clients that I'm working with, but it would be in a massive surplus despite moving more. So I think that overall energy compensation really comes down to whether or not you're pairing your client's nutrition and their training together. So if someone is under fueling or chronic dieting, yo-yo dieting, things like that, they're going to be more likely to suffer from this energy compensation model. And yeah, a good percentage of the calories that they think they're burning from exercise may not be because it's going towards other resources. They're down-regulating their need, down-regulating other aspects of their total daily energy expenditure. But if someone is more of that athlete model, which is kind of how I describe a high energy flux model, they're moving more, they're eating more, they're fueling their activity, and they're able to get a higher um, calorie burn as a result. Yeah. Yeah. Real quick. I, I wanted to jump in. I think you explained that really well. And I think this is where like you see your common like chronic dieter where they're the ones that I think this affects them the most because they're the ones that are constantly in that low energy availability state. They're the ones that are always, you know, trying to diet, trying to diet for fat loss. And then, and then also with that, you know, these are, and Jeremiah, I know you get a lot of these types of clients too. These are the type of people that they come to us and they're like, I'm, I'm training seven days a week. I'm doing a ton of cardio. You know, I'm not, I'm eating 1200 calories, but my weight's just not training down. And I think this is, this affects that people. And then one thing that, um, I know Eric Trexler kind of tied in and, in, um, Brandon, I know you, you hit on this too a little bit was that study by Caro, uh, where they talked about how like higher fat mass tends to 
like th- those people saw more energy compensation. I think mm-hmm. you combine that too with a lot of these people that that do this. They also have they're not necessarily like obese, but I feel like they have a higher levels of body fat, you know, and so they're also probably compensating a little bit more too. So it really does just come down to the individual and like you said, how much, how much food you're bringing in. And it makes sense too. Like you said, with the athletes, like for example, like Michael Phelps, I know like people have seen that where, you know, they showed like what he ate and it probably wasn't like what he said, like 10,000 calories or whatever. Cause I don't know about you. I don't know how somebody could actually eat like 10,000 calories a day. He probably wasn't actually doing that, but either way, we know he was eating a ton and he, you know, he was super lean too. Right. So he obviously didn't have any energy compensation. So I thought this was cool because it does show that like what you bring in and turn like to me, this is just another thing that shows you like, Hey, we have to, we can't always just be eating like low calorie. Like at some point you do need to find ways to get more food in, um, at, at some point, otherwise you are going to run your body is at some point your body is going to fight it. And it makes sense. If you think about it from an evolutionary standpoint, you know, we just can't keep like lowering weight, right. You're, you know, mm-hmm. at some point you just can't keep doing that. And so it makes sense as to why the body does this, but um, yeah, I thought it was a super cool study. And, and again, I, I think they continue to find out like more stuff about this. And I think it's going to be really helpful for us to be able to help the types of clients that, that we work with. Absolutely. Cool. I don't think I have anything else to add on that one. I think that was very well summed up. I think that's a big part of why one periodization is such an important piece of all this and two again for like people looking to change their body composition as brandon said we're not just focusing on like calories burned and chronic dieting but rather like we want to make sure that you're feeling yourselves like movement is going to always be somewhat an important aspect of this but again we need to focus on like within our training adding muscle tissue rather than just trying to burn calories and really fueling that as well for the best body comp outcomes um, so the first question I got was carbs post workout. Does timing really matter? Glucose over fructose or a little bit of both? So I know Brandon, we kind of covered this on our podcast that dropped today. I know it's ironic that it, it drops today. <laughs> I know. Um, so as far as the carbohydrates post workout, as we discussed there, the protein post workout to stimulate muscle protein synthesis is going to be the most important piece of this right so like if and i know i kind of use the analogy in that podcast of like but the thing to understand is like if we are having some carbs post-workout as well if from my perspective it's kind of like dropping a couple more pennies in the piggy bank every day right where basically the process of transforming your physique especially at the level that we're at and a lot of our clients are at it's basically a game of like every day we're dropping a couple pennies in the bank right um and we're maybe we're like adding another penny where we're optimizing things a little bit more right because we know that when we take in now also like protein is also going to help um like protein ingestion is going to help here as well but we know that like when we take in some carbohydrates that is going to help decrease cortisol levels which will help get us into a more rest or digest state um basically getting your body into an anabolic state quicker so from my perspective again if you want to optimize everything that is still going to be beneficial it's also going to help replenish your muscle glycogen stores. Now, again, like we, we discussed on the podcast, and that's funny because this was literally like one of my questions for you, Brandon, was how important this is. So uh, hopefully I'm also not butchering your thoughts here. But alongside that, like if we look at it from the uh, muscle glycogen perspective, basically, like as long as we hit our carbohydrate, if, as long as we get adequate carbohydrates within the next, like before we train next, 
our muscle glycogen stores are likely going to be replenished. But again, from that state, from the perspective of brisketiness and a more anabolic state sooner, it makes sense. And then again, like a great point you made here to this question was also from a nutrient partitioning perspective. We know insulin sensitivity is going to be highest post-workout. So basically more of those carbs can be shuttled towards the muscle self. So for optimal body composition, it does make sense for us to bias a lot more carbs around that training window. Now the fructose versus glucose question is an interesting one. To my understanding, and I could very well be wrong on this, fructose is biased towards replenishing liver glycogen. Is that right? Yeah, they use different transporters, but um, preferentially what fructose does is it gets it replenishes liver glycogen first. But there is some you know some limited research that shows that if we are in a say carb depleted state and all we do is take in fructose, it can replenish um, some of muscle glycogen. It just doesn't preferentially go there. But we have to realize what are fructose sources. Think about the the most common fructose sources. It's fruit, which is generally 50% glucose, 50% fructose. So you're still going to get some of that muscle glycogen replenishment. So really from a fructose versus glucose perspective, it probably is splitting hairs to the point where it just isn't that big of a deal. Okay. So this is like, should we avoid fruit? No. So actually I, I I actually, I, I take a different approach. So basically when we look at different polymers of carbohydrates or different carbohydrate molecules, we have to realize that they get transported differently. So for instance, glucose gets transported into the muscle cell via GLUT4, which is something we covered on our previous podcast. So GLUT4 can either be insulin dependent or insulin independent. Well, when you train, when you go through the process of muscular contractions, you essentially activate GLUT4 translocation independent of insulin, meaning that's why you have higher insulin sensitivity. Your body needs to secrete less insulin to shuttle those carbs into muscle. So we get this upregulation in GLUT4. So what ends up happening is when you take in glucose, so say you take in cream of rice or a rice source that's, that's glucose-based, you're going to have the GLUT4 translocation or transporters translocate to the cell nucleus or to the, the outside periphery of the cell, open it up and suck in that glucose to the muscle. However, there's a limit to how much glucose we can take in. And generally what we see is it's one gram of glucose per minute. So in an hour period uh, of training, you would only be able to get in 60 grams of carbohydrates. But if you're following more of a nutrient timing approach, which actually Jeremiah and I are going to do a full podcast on nutrient timing. So anyone that's interested in this, and especially the person that asked this, we're going to do a deep dive on this. But in particular, say you're going to utilize 90 grams of carbohydrates in your post-workout meal. You're biasing a, a larger percentage to take advantage of the increase in insulin sensitivity and also the fact that you can replenish glycogen more readily post-training than you can any other time of the day. So like Jeremiah hit on, it, it generally we have to look at things from um, a hierarchical perspective. Calories are what matters most and your total split of macronutrients is what matters most. And above that comes nutrient timing and things of that sort. However, we can replenish glycogen within 24 hours. If we eat, you know, say we we're eating 300 grams of carbs a day. If you eat it throughout the course of the day, you will at, at 24 hours, or even there's some research that if you had a really intensive bout, and you had a lot of muscle damage, which actually lowers the rates of glycogen resynthesis, it might take 48 hours. But for most people, that's not going to, unless they're utilizing like a higher frequency approach, it's probably not going to inhibit their ability to replenish glycogen post-workout. However, when we train, there's about a six-hour window post-training where glycogen replenishment is upregulated, just like protein synthesis is. So my 
mentality with that is why not take advantage of when our body's in its most physiological advantageous position to bias these nutrients. So just like most people wouldn't utilize fats post-workout because it slows digestion, it might cause some gastric distress, same thing pre and post-workout with fat intake. Why don't we bias the things that our body's going to be more readily um, able to access as well as utilize for the rebuilding and remodeling process. So that's where protein would come in to create anabolism through stimulating muscle protein synthesis. And then carbohydrates would have that anti-catabolic effect of lowering cortisol. And then when it comes to different types of carbohydrates, you know, glucose is going to go through, it's going to utilize um, the SGLT1 transporter, which takes glucose from the gut into the muscle cell. And it's going to use that GLUT4 translocation to get it into the actual cell. However, when we look at fructose, it uses a different transporter. So like I said, there's a limit to how much glucose you can get in and it's 60 grams per hour. So say post-workout, you were taking in 90 grams. If you took in all that glucose, you might have some GI distress or your body wouldn't readily accept and absorb that as uh, efficiently. So that's where we can use a fructose source. And that is actually upregulated and translocated into the liver and muscle cell via GLUT5 transporters. So by using a combination of glucose and fructose, you're using two transporters in the gut so you can absorb more carbohydrates and more carbs get uh, you know, shuttled to the muscle in a more efficient way. So that's, you know, I personally do that in my own training. I always utilize a glucose and a fructose source. Um, also, you get the benefits like micronutrients and just a, a different um, variety of food, uh, foods and nutrients within that window. Absolutely. So within that, with fruit being a combination of glucose and fructose, then it would probably be a great option post-workout. Absolutely. Yeah, you can do that. You could do honey, another source of fructose. There's a variety of things, but don't fear fruit. Um, there's a lot of heresy and a lot of um, mythology around fructose. If we actually look on the research on fructose, um, where people you know, will say that it causes, it goes into de novo lipogenesis, which we discussed on our last podcast, like it'll get converted into fat or it'll cause fatty liver disease. Um, that's actually at, at intakes, I believe it's above 150 grams per day. But think about that, guys. Like I just mentioned, fruit is fi generally 50% of fructose, 50% of glucose. So you generally have to get 300 grams of carbohydrates from fruit alone. I don't know about you guys. I don't know anyone that's doing that. That's like 10 bananas. That's, uh, you know, 30 apples, something, or uh, 15 apples. It's like an immense amount of fruit. No one, And that has to be done consistently to have that fat deposit where it actually goes through carbohydrates getting turned into triglycerides via de novo lipogenesis, which we discussed in our last podcast. That only accounts for about 1% to 2% of fat conversion. So it's, it's really unlikely. And there's a lot of um, people that take mechanisms and that's, I'm really into research, but I'm more into application. So I, I do this so I could, I, I learn about and I research these things so that not only I could ease my, my clients' questions and also their concerns and their fears, but also so like we understand the mechanisms of why something works, but we have to realize that mechanistic research is not applicable research. And that's where I'm more into the applied sciences. It's like, what are people actually doing? Not are just what could happen in the body in a rat or a cell culture. It's like, what happens when real life humans consume this amount of a particular nutrient, whether it's protein, whether it's carbs or whether it's fats, and what happens when they when they track them and it's in a controlled setting? So really, when you guys look at research, I really suggest it's not that we throw out rat research or in vitro research or cell culture research, but really, if there's human data, look at that first. And the same thing can be applied to artificial sweeteners or insulin or any of these other things where there's a lot of myths around them that kind of fear people, they fear monger 
people into being a little bit more hesitant and to look at through foods in this dichotomous viewpoint or look at macronutrients in this dichotomous viewpoint where they look at it as good or bad, black or white. And it's, that's really where there's a lot of limitations within fitness because it is sexier to sell, you know, don't eat this, don't eat fruit. You know, it, it's, it's something that brings a lot of attention because when you say, tell someone not to do something, you know, they're intrigued and want to know why. Whereas if you take more of an you know, evidence-based approach and you say, well, in moderation, everything can work. There's no hormones that are, you know, inherently good or bad, you know, then it's kind of just like you're middle of the road and it's not sexy. So no one wants to listen to it. I just wanted to, to jump in real quick. When you said 300, so 400 grams of, was it grams of carbs you said, right? Is that what you were saying? Like actually so, not food weight, but like grams of carbohydrates. Yes. Yeah, so the research I've seen was after 150 grams of fructose, consumed daily, they started to see increases in um, fat deposit and things of that sort. But realize that's in a state of uh, calorie surplus. That would not happen. They've done research, I believe, up to the same amount in a calorie deficit, and it does not cause those effects. But that would equate, if we're looking at fruit, to 300 grams. The only time you would get that otherwise would be if you're like ingesting soda, and that's really what it's done through. You know, A lot of these studies are looking at high fructose corn syrup. But yeah, you have a couple hands of pop, and you might get to that 150 grams a day, but those individuals have, there's a lot of confounding factors because generally if you're eating or you're drinking that much of a soda, you know, sugar, sweetened beverage that has high fructose corn syrup, you're also smoking. You're also having a lot of processed and hyperpalatable foods. So there's a lot of, it's like, you know, they say like the healthy user bias, it's like the opposite of that. Yeah. Okay. I, I was just wondering like how much, cause I'm just trying to, in my mind, think about how much fruit that is. If it, if it's like 300 grams of carbs from fruit, yeah, I could see how like, that's, <laughs> that's a lot of like strawberries and blueberries and, and stuff like that's, that. Like you said, <laughs> that's 10 for you guys out there. That's 10 cups of strawberries. That's a, yeah, an good, immense amount. But good, no, no, not 10, 10 would be 150 grams of carbohydrates. That's 20 because it would have to be 300 grams of carbs. And then 50% of that would be the fructose. So you guys would have to consume 20 cups of strawberries per day for an extended period of time. I don't know about you guys, but like a couple of days into that, I'm tapping out. That's, that's where like the, you know, some, like, again, that you kind of heard the, like you're talking about myths and stuff like that. And like, that's where that myth of like, Oh, if you're just going to eat all that fruit, you might as well just eat candy. It's like, okay, well you try to eat all that amount of fruit compared to candy. And I know which one's going to be a lot easier to eat and which one's, you know, going to give you more fiber, other nutrients that you need, which one's more water weight. Right. I just, because I bring this up because, uh, my girlfriend brought this up. She, this was like years ago, I guess she was eating like fruits and somebody like said something to her, like, well, you should just be eating a bag of candy. And I'm like, that is literally the <laughs> dumbest thing that I've ever heard in my entire life. Um, awesome. but, it, but, but you know, that that's like what you hear though, like sometimes, but one thing 100%. I wanted to, but one thing I wanted to say, and you kind of brought this up is like, yeah, definitely with like research is that's one thing that I've really tried to take like a step back and not like necessarily just look at a study and instead kind of have somebody else dissect it just because there is so much that goes into it, you know, just kind of like you said there, like you have to, you just have to be careful and you have to like, see who, you know, who's doing the stuff, like who is in the study, how long it was like, there's just so many things that go into it and you have, you do have to look into those things. And so that was just kind of my two cents on it. Um, yeah, absolutely. All right. Am I up this time? Yes, sir. Let me pull this up. All right. So this was a question and it was tips to make fat loss phases more successful. And this person in particular, we went back and forth in messages. Essentially what he was looking for was he struggled with diets, especially during the beginning stages. He feels like he's that kind of person. And we, I'm, I'm sure all three of us have encountered this where 
he's like on the wagon, off the wagon, and he finds the beginning portion to be the most difficult. And he, he has said that in the past, he's found that within the first few weeks, if he hasn't nailed it, he has kind of a perfection mindset, but also he finds that when he hasn't approached it in the right manner, it kind of has this downward spiral. And I think a lot of us can relate to that. It's kind of a domino effect. If you start off on the right foot, you get some weight loss, you see some success, that positive uh, momentum builds and you kind of get motivated from that. So I really wanted to, you know, all three of us to give, um, you know, a lot of insight into this question, because it is something that honestly, I get asked about all the time and it's how to approach a fat loss phase, um, in the most you know optimal way possible, but also like the most sustainable way. So some of the stuff I wanted to hit on was for this individual, first and foremost, go in with a structured plan. You know, many people start a diet with the goal but without an actual structured plan of action. So they have something in their mind. They want to lose 20 pounds or they want to get into stage condition, but they have no course of action. They think about the goal rather than the process. And that's really where we get into this. And especially within fitness, a lot of people are outcome oriented rather than process oriented. So they put the goal like on this pedestal and that's what they're aiming for, but they don't think about the steps that they need to take to get there. So going in with a plan is crucial for keeping you accountable to the process and to valuing that process. So within that plan, I'd suggest setting up some type of diet structure, whether that's a meal plan or a flexible template that's made in advance. That's the biggest thing. Have something made in advance so you can just focus on executing rather than weighing it every day and wasting time and mental energy playing macro Tetris. Because that's a huge thing that I see people and this individual in particular mentioned, you know, he doesn't know what to eat and he'll set, you know, just a macro target, but then he's constantly playing around with things. And it makes it more likely that when he is suffering, when he is stressed at work or he comes home, he's, he's more susceptible to fall off that plan rather than sticking with it. So lay out when to, you know, when to eat, what to eat, how much to eat. All this is going to help keep you on, on track. And then another big thing that I'm, I'm huge on with my clients is creating a regular meal pattern with consistent meals and timing. And it's not that timing is everything, but having a structure is something that's going to really give you not only discipline, but is going to set up your routine to make you more successful. And this is one of the main habits that I've found to, you know, a ton of benefit on working with clients because getting them into like a regular eating schedule where they follow, say, a consistent meal pattern and incorporate eating at specific times or specific meals rather at specific times. Um, you know, based on when those meals fit best into their schedule and their lifestyle. And by getting into a consistent fitness routine where you eat certain meals at certain times, you know, such as a specific pre and post-workout meals around your workouts, it allows you to manage your fitness goals in a much easier fashion. So instead of like wasting extra mental currency and energy, trying to figure out what and when you're going to eat and not knowing how different meals will impact your digestion, your training performance, your energy levels, getting into a consistent meal pattern will allow you to automate you know, part of your day, which allows you to experience less decision fatigue and have more mental energy to focus on other things, which is hugely important. Like this individual in particular, he just wants to be lifestyle lean. You know what I mean? He's, he's not looking to compete, but he has a vacation coming up and he wants to do it in a sustainable fashion, but he doesn't have the, um, the things in place, essentially the um, key habits in place to do so. And then also, from um, a scheduling or regularity perspective, we know that eating at consistent times also gets your body into rhythm where it knows when to expect to eat based on how habitual it becomes, um, which will influence the times when your main hunger hormone ghrelin is released as ghrelin is regulated in a fashion 
where it's released prior to regular meals to prepare you for feeding. So if you guys ever notice, like if you eat, yeah, I know Jeremiah and Jeff can attest to this. If you eat at consistent times, you generally get hungry at the same times. And, and on average, it's about 30 minutes to an hour prior to that meal. And that's because ghrelin is like many hormones. It's a circadian hormone. It works off your body's internal clock. However, if you're constantly switching what time you're eating at and how many meals per day you're eating, you're going to get yourself in a situation where it's more difficult to manage your appetite which is one of the number one reasons why people fail diets. So having that regular meal plan is going to help you manage your hunger. It's going to also help with less food focus and then also makes for a more efficient and more time efficient meal prep, which is huge. If you could set a plan and know what you're eating throughout the course of a week or you know every couple of days, meal prep in advance, just have that ready so that you're less likely to fall victim to making like short-term decisions and really falling victim to the, the situation, emotional eating, things of that sort. Another thing that I would suggest is avoiding excess variety because for each like taste or flavor that you introduce into a meal, you increase your appetite or ability to eat, which will really hinder your ability to maintain a calorie deficit. What we have to realize is our body doesn't know how many calories we're consuming during a meal or while we're eating. What it does know is that foods with vastly different tastes have different nutritional profiles. So what we don't have, you know, we don't have an unlimited appetite for a singular flavor. So if you sat down and just eat chicken breast, you would notice that you wouldn't be able to eat an unlimited amount of it. And, but if you're just constantly, you know, um, switch up flavors, and this is something called sensory specific satiety. So if you eat something with the same flavor profile, something that's salty, for instance, um, salty and savory, you're eventually going to tap out in terms of your appetite. It's going to send signals to your brain that into your hypothalamus that you're full. However, if you ever notice, we always have room for dessert. No matter what you've eaten, if you've had a salty meal and there's a sweet dessert that comes out, we've all been in that situation where we thought we were full from the, the um, you know steak dinner that we had, but all of a sudden this cake comes out or this ice cream or in my case, brownies. And I'm not saying no, I can be stuffed to the brim, but I still have room for that. So our brain will drive us to eat more if there's more flavor variety available to us. And there's actually studies on this, um, you know, actually specifically on buffets, and they show that the illusion of variation increases energy intake by 42%. So meaning that the the fact that people had unlimited access to different foods and they were changing their flavor profile plate to plate or even within the same plate, it was causing them to overconsume energy or overconsume calories. Another huge thing, especially, you know, I specifically touched on this with this individual was to avoid sugar foods and limit hyperplatable and highly processed food. And it's not that you can't eat what you want on a diet and lose fat, but it's that you can't eat as much as you want, which is why hyperplatable foods are an issue. Because honestly, the unfortunate truth about food is that if you like something, you'll be more likely to eat more of it. So, you know, if you, you know, tasty foods will cause you to overeat more or have a higher likelihood of overeating than blander foods. So you should enjoy your meals to an extent, but not so much that that meal causes you to be driven to overeat based on the hyperplatable, you know, food choices that you select. So if you do have a goal of getting really lean, whether it's for the stage or for a vacation in this person's case, you need to be more selective with food choice to ensure you don't overconsume calories and realize that for this period of time in this fat loss phase, food enjoyment is secondary because we really have to think about food as fuel. And if you're utilizing that, if it fits your macros approach where you're fitting in fun foods and things that you really enjoy, not as they're only going to lead you to overconsume energy, but also be at a higher likelihood for micronutrient deficiencies, because those aren't whole unprocessed foods that are, are nutrient dense and more likely to help with satiety, help you get in all the micronutrients and key enzymes and cofactors that you actually need. Did you guys have anything else you wanted to add to that? I have a couple. Jeremiah, I don't know if you wanted to hit on a few first and I can finish up either way. Yeah, cool. I'm good with that. Um, 
I, I think as you touched on the structure is one of the biggest pieces of all this. Like it, I, people make fat loss so much harder for themselves than it needs to be by, Hey, I have macro targets and every day I'm just going to kind of try to wing it and we'll see how the day goes. One, that's why people think tracking macros has to be so damn time consuming. We're really like what we push to clients and what we personally Jeff, keyboard, <laughs> I'm talking with you, uh, is very much like, especially in a fat loss phase, hey, let's take Sunday to plan ahead, just a day for Monday that seems easier, repeatable, it hits, this hits your macros, okay, we're going to meal prep, and you can prep all your meals for the week, right, just multiply that times five or six, and cool, we have our basically a template for the week that we know is going to hit your macros. Now, basically from there, literally all you have to do is on Tuesday, if you don't want a ton of variety, you can literally just eat what you ate yesterday, copy and paste it in my fitness pal or whatever you track, whatever tracking app you use. And it's as simple as that. You'll lose fat. That in and of itself helps so damn much. Um, but the view of that is as well, like as if you do want to go out and have a couple glasses of wine, for example, you're tracking macros so you can get a little bit more flexible there. Um, the context of like you digging a little bit deeper and understanding he struggles with the all or nothing mindset is super helpful also um i know a lot of the women that we work with really struggle with this piece as well so it's something we talk about a lot and i think understanding one no matter what nutrition just can't be perfect is kind of a relief for people so like i always use the analogy like let's imagine there's just these two chickens on the barnyard right and one is just like the alpha chicken that gets all the best worms and the other is just kind of like the brunt chicken. So like if we actually measure the amount of protein in those two chicken breasts, like one might have 26 grams and one might have 23 grams, but we're always going to log it as like whatever four ounces of chicken is, whatever 22 or 23 grams of protein. Um, so even within that, like we can't be perfect, but I think people like, Typically the thing to understand is even in, because oftentimes like when people are falling off, it's like I had a day where I didn't hit my targets to a T and I'm very much a perfectionist. So I feel like I failed. I completely ruined my progress for the week. Plus the scale is up. I think one thing that's very helpful there is actually reverse engineering. Okay. So about how much would it take you to actually have gained? So we see the scale is up two pounds. How much would you have actually had to have taken in to gain about a pound of body fat, right? Well, we know roughly about 3,500 calories over maintenance intake. And there's tons of variables here, like food composition. You probably increase activity as a result of overeating. Like we don't need to get too deep into that. Just like at, at the simplest level, let's say that 3,500 calories over maintenance just translates over perfectly to one pound of fat gain. If you'd gain two pounds of fat, let's say your maintenance calories are 2,000 calories. You still would have had to have eaten over 9,000 calories yesterday. Did you actually do that? No. Okay. Then we know we're probably retaining a little bit of water, probably higher sodium intake. This is going to drop right back down. Then secondly, a lot of times this is even things like, okay, so let's say your intake target was 1700 calories. And a lot of times the thing that throws people off is like, well, I really feel like it failed because I ate 1900 calories this day. I went over and I completely ruined it. Right. And it's like, Hey, like if we look at actually about where your estimated maintenance is, it, we're estimating your maintenance is like 200 calories. So understand there, you were still even losing fat that day, right? We're still below maintenance. It was just a slightly, it was just slightly less progress, right? So it's important to not look at it as this on off switch where it's either I was perfect or I failed, but I always like to use the analogy of a dimmer switch, right? Like, hey, six days this week, you had that dial turned all the way up to 10. The light was the brightest. 
this one day we turned it down a little bit, but it's not like you shut the light off completely. It was just a little bit less, right? So if you look at this as like the net, or even if you did go over your calories, right? If you look at the net deficit you were in the rest of the week, like let's say you were 200 calories over, but every other day you were 500 calories below your maintenance intake, that is still a pretty large net deficit across the week, right? Like this is still a week of net progress, but it's so important to zoom out from like that micro perspective of a single day and look at it over the course of a week. And really like, did you really, because this is almost always a mindset issue, not absolutely like somebody completely ruined their progress in a single day. 100%. Jeremiah, I love that you just hit on that. Um, not only in terms of the black and white mindset, but in terms of like the food swaps and, the, and hitting the macro to perfection, we have to realize that not only is your maintenance a range, but all food labels are a range. And I actually just had this exact conversation with a client because I was trying to get across to him. I had provided him with macros and a, like a meal template, but also a food swaps list or a food list. And so he was asking me and he said, I don't get how you're, you're giving me the option of either chicken breast, ground turkey, or 96% or 96 for ground beef. Um, and he was saying, you know, in the meal, I believe it was 40 grams of protein, you know, from any of these sources. And I was, I was trying to get across to him that although the 96, four ground beef has different calories than say like the chicken, we have to take into consideration that food labels can be up to 20% off, um, which is allowed by the FDA. So even if the calories you see for ground beef and chicken are different from one another, both of those labels could be off. And even if those two sources had the exact same calorie counts on their labels, so say for that portion, it was 250 calories for the chicken, as well as 250 calories for the ground beef, there could still be that 20% discrepancy between the two, which is completely out of our control. And so what I was trying to get across to them was, for instance, like for 25 grams of uh, protein from chicken, there's generally two grams of fat. And for the same amount for that 25 grams of 96, four ground beef, there's generally like around four grams of fat. But we have to realize that these are averages. They're, they're not exact. It could be, you know, not every chicken and not every beef source will have exactly these, the same amounts. So it's really what we do over time. We need to focus on being like more consistent with our foods. We rather than trying to aim for 100% perfection and accuracy and then getting, you know, paralyzed by over analysis. And I see a lot of people do that with this like food perfection where they don't realize that everything is arranged. Your total daily energy expenditures arranged, your maintenance. It's not that we shouldn't aim for being. As, as good or attentive to the plan, as adherent and consistent with the plan as possible, but aim for consistency rather than you know perfection because that's why a lot of people get burnt out in this industry. They think they have to abide by these set rules and there's these golden foods and it's this black or white mentality where it's good foods and bad foods and they can't make food swaps. And you have to realize everything's an average over time. And if, for example, I gave this individual this specific example, say that he swapped out all his protein sources from, um, you know, chicken and turkey to ground beef. If we saw that his weight was trending up and his, or his weight loss was stalling, then we would make adjustments elsewhere or that we would switch back those sources. It's nothing that we can't overcome. We just have to be consistent and you have to be honest and open you know, in terms of your communication so that I know what's going on, but I didn't want him to get paralyzed by the thought that, hey, these have different calorie amounts. I mean, he was talking about something like when he reached out, it was like 42 calories difference. And I was like, you know, yes, your calorie intake for the day is different. If you were to extrapolate that over five meals, yeah, that's 200 calories, give or take. However, you're not doing it every meal. You're not making that exact food swap first and foremost. And there's that 20% discrepancy. So aim for being consistent and providing you with feedback as to what you're doing swap, you know, food swap wise. And we'll go from there rather than getting so 
you know, locked into these specific and these granular details that really aren't necessary. This person wasn't doing a contest prep. It wasn't like we were at the, the end stages of a fat loss phase where, yeah, every little thing counts. And I'll tell you guys from my own experience, you know, I used to not really pay attention to condiments, especially if they were quote unquote calorie free. But then I had a client that was in contest prep that was eating a container or taking in a container of mustard per day. And when I did the math on that, it was 370 something calories per, per bottle. And that's where it was make or break. He was eating, you know, more calories from that than he was from, you know, uh, carbohydrates or, or something like that. But, you know, we don't have to get there, especially if your your goal is being lifestyle lean. We're trying to do this in a sustainable manner. Realize sustainability isn't always isn't only about the plan that's in front of you, but also your approach to it. Let me let me jump in real quick. The things that you do when you're in a deficit like that, especially when you're trying to get super lean for like a bodybuilding show, a uh, whole thing of mustard. I couldn't even imagine that, but I feel like people do all kinds of weird stuff like that. Um, a couple things I wanted to hit on though. First, like I thought all those were great from you guys, like the mindset part of it, I think is huge. And then like, you know, Brandon with the meal timing and then again, the, uh, what we call what the, the buffet effect, right. Trying not to switch up too much, like all the time and, and whatnot. And I think those are all like super helpful. Uh, one that I wanted to bring up and this kind of goes around with the structure, but how long, like, I think having a general time frame, like how long you're going to be doing a fat loss phase. And again, that could just go in the structure part that you talked about, but I think that's super important. Um, because I think for a couple things, it kind of shows you that this isn't going to be the changes that you have to make forever. It's a, kind of a temporary thing. And I think knowing that it's easier to make those sacrifices when you need to. Um, so I think having a general time frame, and I don't know what you guys w- would say, I would say probably anywhere from eight to 12 weeks, you know, give or take, depending on where the person's at, how they're feeling, you know, I'm sure you would extend that even more as well. But, uh, you know, f- to start, you know, probably eight to 12 weeks or so and making sure everything's going good. A couple other things uh, that I wanted to hit on I th- that I think are huge, like your environment. I think your environment plays a big role, like making sure that's set up to be conducive to what you're trying to do. And so what I mean by that is um, James Krieger had a podcast or not a podcast, a weightology review on diet adherence. And like one of the things he talked about was, you know, your environment. So even like just kind of keeping like any, anything that's like that you don't have to like cut up or like eat, like try to keep those things away from you. Because even if it quote, like is a quote unquote healthy food, like fruit, like it's easy to just grab those things if they're like ready and around you all the time. So just try to avoid like having that like sitting out at your house. If you can, obviously if you're at work, I think that makes it a little bit more challenging and you're going to have to practice a little bit more willpower there. But at least when you're at home, you know, set, set up your environment to be conducive to your goal. And then like on that, on top of that, just as you guys know, if you don't have this stuff in your house, like you're not going to eat it. So just also like grocery shopping and just making sure you don't have your, uh, tempting foods there. Um, and then one other thing I wanted to hit on, and I know, and I think this is going to be kind of a, preference in terms of a coach is what you like to do. But I think if you're, if you have a client that doesn't have a great like diet skill and they're not like, they don't have a ton of body fat to lose. I think going with a smaller calorie deficit right off the bat could be helpful. Now I do think it's dependent because I know some people say that, Hey, you should probably go a little bit higher with your calorie deficit to get to get um, buy-in initially. But then I also think that you need to be careful with that because if you know, if somebody can't stick to it or they do stick to it and then all of a sudden they have, you know, hunger goes, their, their hunger gets super high, energy levels crash. I think you can run into some issues there with, with adherence. So that's kind of my thought, but again, so knowing yourself and knowing like your client, I think is important there with that, but, but maybe cautioning on going like with 
with not a, a large calorie deficit right off the bat. Yeah, you'll see that that buy-in maybe potentially and more progress right away, but we have to think more long-term with it as well, right? So kind of a few things that I wanted to throw in there on top of what you guys already um, gave. Absolutely. Absolutely. Jeremiah, what's your uh, next question, my man? All right. I have menstrual cycle lost. If body fat percentage is moderate to high, 26 to 27%, you suggest not cutting at all, even to lose only five to seven pounds or even gain weight, having more body fat percentage than I'd like. Now, this question came in pretty late. I wish that I would have been able to go back and forth with her a little bit more because I would really like a lot of context here. I'm interested to hear your take on this, Brandon. I would say from my perspective, I would be incredibly hesitant to recommend someone, especially like in that it's not, you're not shredded at 26 to 27%, but it's not like you're at an extremely unhealthy level of body fat either. I would very much in that situation encourage some, go ahead. I was just, I just was wanted to throw, run in there like real quick and say something about that, that body fat percentage. I feel like a lot of people think that like, they hear body fat percentage for males and they think that that's what theirs needs to be. But we have to realize that like, it is going to be a little bit higher for females. So I I know you're kind of hitting on that, but I think that's super important to to stress that to this person. So yeah, sorry, go ahead. Absolutely. No, Um, I would definitely, I would say from my perspective as a coach, this is for sure a situation where I would say like, Hey, we want to enter in a health phase and potentially of course, dig a lot deeper into what could be causing this. Is it like, Hey, maybe you just recently got done with a very aggressive diet. Maybe you were at 40% body fat before, and we just need to spend some time at maintenance and just focus on, again, improving health as a whole, giving your, like letting your body get the signal that it does have plenty of energy available, spend time there, see your cycle kind of regulate itself. Once again, our stress level is super high. And that's something that we need to focus on better managing. Um, if all those variables are in place, like, and again, this is something that can be caused by so many things. Like, are you on birth control? Did you recently get off of birth control? I think it's a very context dependent question. Um, potentially, do we need to dig deeper into blood work? And I would also say definitely here, like, this is something where I would also say, go talk to your PCP or your OBGYN and like get their insight into it as well. But what I, what I would say is like right out of the gate, I would be very, very, very hesitant to recommend somebody go into a battle space in that case. But I'm interested to hear you guys' thoughts on that. Yeah. So first and foremost, just to hit on the body fat piece, we have to realize, like Jeff said, there's a huge differentiation or, or difference between what's essential body fat for females and what's essential body fat for males. So for males, we only have 3% of essential body fat, whereas women have 12%. So we see that nine to 10% discrepancy off the bat. So say, you know, Jeremiah, how much body fat did she say she was? 26 to 27%. Yeah. So that's, you know, 16%, 15 to 16% on a male. That's a a lean individual. It's not super lean. It's not, you know, she might not be exactly comfortable with where she's at, but it's not like she has a, a ton of body fat on her. So we often have to think about the fact that where is her body fat set point or settling point? Where is she coming from? Was this a female that that's the first thing I would ask? I always ask about diet history, what they were like growing up. Um, you know, what was their weight? What was their approximate body fat percentage within the last couple of years? Because this individual could be sitting at 26% body fat, but could her body's homeostasis or that that comfortable settling point could be 35%. So now she's far below her, her natural level of where her body feels most comfortable at. And then the other aspect is 
one of the number one aspects that leads to amenorrhea or the, the loss of, you know, menstrual cycle, um, whether that's like the female athlete triad where we see, you know, this low energy availability state or low bone mineral density, and then the loss of a menstrual cycle is being in a deficit. So this person might not be at the, um, she might just be not at an adequate energy availability, meaning that it doesn't necessarily mean that she's in a deficit. But if she's doing high amounts of activity, if this is someone that's extremely active, she could be in a state where she's expending more than she realizes or she's super active and she's just not feeling her body enough, which is needed for the production of sex hormones, especially for reproductive hormones. So that's where I would have this individual. She's lost her cycle. So I'm going to have her go get blood work for me. I want to see where estrogen is. I want to see where progesterone is. I want to see where her reproductive hormones, LH, FSH, is so that I can get a more a deeper dive. I always tell my clients, I like seeing, you know, popping the hood and seeing what's under there. I really want to get a, a more all-encompassing viewpoint because you might be expressing certain symptoms and characteristics. And I might have, based off my experience with working with hundreds of clients, have, you know, certain uh, principles that I've applied and seen work. But until I really know objectively what your levels are looking like for this individual, I'm not going to be able to really see what the root causes and then go after that. But overall, I would not put this person into a calorie deficit. I would not have them diet. And honestly, the number one way that we see to um, reverse menstrual cycle dysfunction is actually to put them in a surplus. You know, we know that with metabolic adaptation, getting back to energy balance, so being at uh, maintenance calories or above is the best way to reverse metabolic adaptation, but that's more on the metabolic side of things. That's for the restoration of resting metabolic rate for lean body mass, for thyroid production, all that kind of stuff. But when we actually look into the literature on menstrual cycle dysfunction, which there's very limited, so I, I do want to make this very clear, but I'll tell you from my own experience, I've had many, many females come to me that have lost their cycle. I mean, I recently had a female that was a competitor. So there's multiple aspects going in there, very low body fat, low energy availability status, very high activity levels. She had lost her um, cycle for almost seven and a half years before we started working together. And it did take several months, but I had to get her body fat up a little bit. Um, it wasn't considerable, but she was at a, a very low percentage of body fat. So it was a few percentages, but I really had to get her energy availability up. So I had to fuel her both calorically, but also in terms of micronutrients. So this could also be from a perspective that she doesn't have the necessary micronutrients, enzymes and cofactors and vitamins and minerals needed for the production of these sex hormones. So it could be that she's eating at, you know, maintenance calories, but it's not, you know, she's not underfueled, but she's undernourished. So there's so many aspects, but we do have some literature on menstrual cycle um, recovery, essentially. And, you know, what they showed was that putting people in a 20 to 40% surplus was the most effective uh, in terms of getting them back into having an actual functioning menstrual cycle as compared to keeping them at their baseline calorie requirements. And this wasn't drastic. Like when they keep in mind, these women were at a very low state of energy availability. So I think the surplus was only like three to 400 calories, but they did show that in comparison, the treatment group that received the calorie surplus um, had a restoration of their menstrual cycle as compared to those that stayed at maintenance calories. So just because you're at maintenance, you're not in a deficit and you're not actively losing fat doesn't mean that you're taking in enough energy to fuel these processes. Because we have to think about it from like an evolutionary or even like a survival aspect. If you're a female, especially, you know, what we were meant to do evolutionarily was to conceive, to carry a baby. So if you're at this state of low energy availability, your body's not going to be want to, you know, it, it's not going to feel safe 
being able to conceive a child. And the first part of that is having a, a regularly functioning menstrual cycle. So with this type of individual, I would look to do like a primer phase um, where I would you know, optimize their internal health. I would work on getting their energy availability status up as well as their micronutrient intake up. I would, I would address any nutrient deficiencies that they have, both in terms of when they send me over their food log, what I'm seeing, as well as through blood work, what I'm seeing off. And we would approach that and really optimize internal health before we would go into any type of um, deficit. Because also with these individuals, I usually notice that those that have already lost their menstrual cycle that come to me that do, like they're dead set that they're going to go into a fat loss phase or even my competitors, because their body's not in a great state health-wise and internally, they're more resistant to fat loss. So it's harder. They have to do a more aggressive deficit, which only compounds the symptoms and the side effects that they're experiencing. So that's where I would do a primer phase first. And this could be you know, anywhere from six to 12 weeks. I had one female, like I'm talking about in particular, that had lost her menstrual cycle for seven and a half years. That was a 16-week primer phase until we got her menstrual cycle back. And then we could go more into a maintenance phase where I wasn't you know, strategically increasing her calories. And then we were focusing more on body composition but I will say, like, I always say this catchphrase, a healthy body is a responsive body. And it's, it's not just a catchphrase. This is something I live by. This is something that I've seen in practice with hundreds of individuals. And I really suggest, and I encourage this individual to optimize that first. And she will see the responses in her body just because she'll be less systemically fatigued, less systemically stressed, less inflammation. She'll feel better. She'll perform better. She'll fuel herself. She'll be able to feel better in and outside of the gym, which will increase her energy expenditure, her need. So she probably will maintain or even better her body composition just by fueling herself. And especially if she can get her hormones, her reproductive and sex hormones back into check, where she is going to be able to recover better from training and maintain a better body composition because her estrogen and progesterone values are back to where they should be for, for her age demographic. And uh, just you know, for reference for this particular individual, I did a full podcast on this subject actually uh, a while back. Um, it's called uh, 100% Real with Rudy. And it was all about the primer phase and really what I focus on to get women because I do have a lot of chronic dieters or women that have been on and off the, the dieting bandwagon. They've really wanted to get lean and they've suffered consequences including menstrual cycle dysfunction as a result. So I would definitely suggest if she wants further information, definitely check out that podcast. Can I ask two follow-up questions on that quick? Absolutely. One, and it sounds like I could probably learn this by listening to the podcast as well. Within that primer phase from a training perspective, are you typically trying to reduce the stress load from training? So basically pulling back, maybe increasing RIR, et cetera. And then two, when it comes to putting, like being in a surplus, is restoration, especially for an individual around 26 to 27% body fat, is restoration per cycle more likely to come from an increase in fat, in fat mass, or is it primarily a product of like her being at a surplus and she'd be okay to take like a more lean gaze approach like we talked recently versus like actually actively needing to add fat back? So first with the training, I always look at total allostatic load, meaning their total stress load. What does their stress bucket look like? So if I have someone that comes to me that's a competitor, their number one stress is generally training because that's what they're putting their all into. So if this person's in an overtrained state uh, in terms of not overtraining by the definition, because we see that overtraining, I mean, it's extremely rare. But what I'm saying is if she's overdoing it, if she's a competitor training six to seven days a week, that this individual doesn't sound like it. But when I have had competitors come to me that they're literally just draining themselves in, in the gym, that's where I look to pull back on training intensity as well as frequency. So I might take them from training six days a week to four days a week. I will uh, decrease the proximity to failure. 
I will, you know, increase the reps in reserve. Essentially, I will keep them no more than three to four reps in reserve. You know, nothing to failure, nothing that's systemically taxing. The reason for that is stress is stress. The body, you know, responds to any stress, physiological, psychological, mental, emotional, in the same manner. It still has the same physiological consequences, meaning that it doesn't matter if you had, you know, a financial struggle or a breakup. Or if you're just breaking your body down in the gym, you're still getting that cortisol response, which downregulates sex hormones. So when we have a stress response, our body, you know, initiates these cascade of catecholamines and cortisol. And cortisol is directly inhibitory to our anabolic hormone production. And that's why it's considered catabolic. So if this person, I would look at their training logs, I would look at their training setup. Most likely I would pull back on training intensity. I would focus more on restoration in all aspects, more walks, more parasympathetic activities. Uh, that's what I've seen to work best. Some meditation, some breath work, um, some mindfulness activities. I'm also going to focus on um, things that, you know, activities that she really enjoys. So if training, like say this individual, she's 26, 27% body fat, she's a recreational trainee. Um, and training is kind of a stress because she only does it for the body composition aspects. I'm going to try to find like a recreational sport she likes, like something that's going to keep her super active and it's going to help with calorie expenditure, but it's not going to be super draining both mentally and physically. So those are some of the aspects that I would look on that front. And then from a, a perspective of this individual in particular, it wouldn't be that she would restore her. She's not at critically low levels of body fat. It's not that she's high in body fat, but she's not particularly low. So regaining body fat is really not going to, in my opinion, have that large of an impact on her ability to regain menstrual cycle function. Can it help? Absolutely. But the number one focus of mine is going to be titrating up calories to get her in a better state of energy availability, meaning more energy in the system, more fuel. And so with that, I'm going to take more of that lean gains approach or that you know lean building phase approach where I uh, slowly increase and titrate up calories and monitor biofeedback. And you know, in one of the particular studies I'm recalling about menstrual cycle recovery, they did this average increase of, I believe it was three to 400 calories. They kept training the same, but it did take them a good amount of time to restore that menstrual cycle function. And that's where I've seen doing things on two different aspects, you know, pulling back training a little bit and then slowly titrating up calories. So I'm pulling back on expenditure, especially higher intensity expenditure. Another thing that I see that's super common, and I'm sure that most of the women that you encounter, because I know that this is the case with me, they're doing a lot of high intensity cardio. They're doing boot camp classes. They're doing, you know, F45 and things of that sort. I cut, I cut that out completely. You know, I'm not looking for calorie chasing. I'm looking for adaptation and stimulus. Um, so I'm looking at lowering the systemic load, increasing calories accordingly. And it's not to regain body fat. It's to regain energy in the system and regulate things a little bit more efficiently. Can, can I, basically, I feel like with this type of person too, I feel like based on everything you said, like, I feel like for them, it's like basically trying to get them to do something that they probably like don't want to do. Right. Even though like, that's the thing that's like keeping them from seeing the results. It's like, they probably are going to be very resistant. I feel like to like doing all those things just because that's like goes against everything that they think. And, but you know, again, with this type of person, I feel like they're just going to be like Brandon said, if you're not like focusing on getting these things better, if you're just going to make everything like much tougher, this is where I feel like with fitness, people get themselves into this trap of like fitness fluff where it's like, Hey, you just got to work harder. You just got to do more. But I feel like in this example, like for her, the challenging thing to do is going to be what she like, it's almost like the easier thing in a way in terms of like the work she, that she has to do, but it's like, it's tough mentally to like make that switch. And I'm sure all three of us probably have gone through something similar to this, where we just thought we had to do more when like really the things like, for example, recovery, cutting back on training a little bit, like 
it just plays such a big role. And like sometimes you have to like get uncomfortable and do these things that you don't necessarily like want to do in a way. You guys. So I just, honestly, I just pulled up the study and the average, um, body weight increase over a 12 month period of being in that surplus was only 2.6 kilograms. So if we extrapolate that out, that's about five and a half pounds. So it wasn't about, um, exactly increasing a lot of body weight. It was about increasing those calories. So just keep that in mind. It's not that we're, we're, you know, for this woman, I know a lot of times females will come to me and they're really scared about body fat and body weight gain. In the case with my competitor, she needed body fat. It was essential. She was at very low levels of body fat. She was coming out of a contest and she had been doing this for quite a long time. She was uh, an IFB pro. She had been on, you know, multiple contest preps, especially at a very high level. Um, so, you know, there was a lot of competitiveness and, and under, fueling and a lot of micronutrient deficiencies. So I needed to get her body fat up. But in this individual's case, don't be really concerned about that. Think about, you know, fueling your body. Think about this is going to be a positive thing and not going to necessarily be a weight gain period. So you could kind of utilize it more of like a reverse dieting approach, especially if she is in that state of low energy availability. So, so basically it sounds like the leaner you are, you probably want to get that body fat on. But then like, if you're, again, like you said, she's not high body fat, but since she's, you know, 26, 27, for her, it's the calories that are that are going to be a little bit more important in that situation. Hundred percent. So this is kind of like for for those out there that are familiar with like recovery diets versus reverse diets. Recovery diets are generally more applicable to someone with a very low percentage of body fat. Those competitors, those that need to regain body fat for more essential processes. Whereas a reverse dieting is more for those that want a sustainable body composition. They haven't went to the lower depths of a contest prep or really to those lower you know those lower levels of essential body fat. Cool. I think. All right, Jeff, and, you're next, my man. No, Jeremy, did you have something you want to finish up on? on no, that? go, go for it. Okay. I was good. Um, yeah. So this one, I, I, I had like on a story and then I, I brought it up in another podcast, but I wanted to get your guys's uh, take on it too. So basically does alcohol <laughs> inhibit fat burning like 36 hours after you drink? Like, I don't know if you kind of what your understanding of it is. And so I was just going to leave it up to you guys to kind of answer that. Cause I just want to hear your guys' thoughts on it. <laughs> Yeah, to my understanding, when we're looking at alcohol, so basically your body is going to stop fat oxidation until it's processed the alcohol and removes it from its system because it essentially sees it as a poison, right? So like the duration for which it would, like how long would that like quote unquote stall fat loss is going to depend on the amount of alcohol that they took in. I saw that on your sword. I thought you did a great job answering it, by the way. Um, that would be my take. So it would basically be... Uh, now I would also think you probably have to have hit it pretty hard for it to like quote unquote stall fat loss for 36 hours. But I mean, there is like, if we look at it from my understanding, like the fat loss isn't going to be happening while your body is processing the alcohol and removing it from your system. Well, and so, so on that real quick, uh, again, like I, I think really what it comes down to is if you're in a deficit, it doesn't necessarily matter because you're in that energy deficit. But if you take, if you go super hard, you're going to be drinking a lot and that's going to add a lot of calories. So the chances of you actually being in that deficit anyways, are pretty much like slim to none. Um, is, am I kind of understanding that right? So basically you're saying like, is it actually, is it a problem if calories are equated? Like basically I feel like if you're in a deficit, that's really all that matters. Like in terms of like, if, if you're, as long as you're in a deficit, you'll st still burn fat over time. But I get that it's not going to actually burn fat right then and there because it's, again, you're not, it, it needs to clear that out of the system, but wouldn't that even like use up 
calories too to to clear that out of this out of the body too. I don't know if when he, I don't know if you guys know that yeah, or not. Yeah. So when we when we actually look at the mechanisms behind alcohol and metabolism, essentially what we're looking at is it is a toxin in the body. It's it's kind of seen as a poison. So your body is going your body. The number one thing we're looking to do is survive. So your body is going to preferentially burn and oxidize alcohol over any other macronutrients. So this is actually something on one of our mentorship calls, Jeremiah and I went over. And essentially what ends up happening when you consume alcohol is that instead of utilizing either carbs for energy or fats for energy, you're going to burn alcohol first until you get it out of your system. And I don't want to encourage anyone, but there is a high thermic effect of alcohol because it is a toxin to the body. So it is hard to metabolize. So it's not up to the point of like... Um, protein, but it is, has a higher thermic effect of feeding than, um, this actually, actually parlays right into my next question, but a higher thermic effect than say carbs or fats. But what ends up happening is just like when you take in a carbohydrate and insulin is raised. Now realize these are just mechanisms of action. So when you take an alcohol, it's going to have some carbohydrates, uh, generally. And also because alcohol is a poison, it's going to blunt lipolysis. Meaning at that moment in time, if you, you go to burn energy, you go to do cardio or, you know, the ne next morning you wake up, you go to do fasted cardio instead of your body oxidizing fat, it's going to oxidize that alcohol first and foremost. So it does blunt lipolysis in the moment. But when we really look at it, we ult ultimately energy balance is what's going to determine if you gain or lose body fat. So if this person's in a diet and they're in a true deficit, Drinking alcohol is not going to blunt their effect to lose body fat or to lose weight. Let me, let me make that clear. It's not going to blunt their ability to lose weight. However, including alcohol regularly into their diet can make fat loss more difficult based on the fact that A, it's calorically dense. Um, it offers minimal satiety. So if we look at like a calorie per gram type of aspect, seven calories per gram in alcohol, it's also, you know, loaded with other uh, constituents. Generally, it's going to be with mixed drinks and things of that sort. And it can also cause you to make like less than favorable decisions around your nutrition. And it's been shown to cause you to passively overeat. And then we also have to look at not just in the moment and not just the nutritional aspects, but what else does alcohol do? We know that alcohol, you know, diminishes sleep quality. Um, it, like I mentioned, it reduces inhibition. So it causes you to make like more risky decisions. So if you're drinking and you're gambling, you're going to be more likely to, to be a big baller, or you're going to be more likely to have those hyperplatable foods, which is why like wings and pizza and, you know, uh, cheese fries and things of that sort. I'm like reliving my college days over here. Um, you're more susceptible to that and to engage in those behaviors. And then it can impact training performance as well as activity levels on the days after training. So in that 36 hour window, so it's doing that by not only in, impacting your training performance, but also impacting your recovery. Uh, we also see that it can negatively impact hormones, but that also has to be taken into consideration. That's when you drink it in, um, I don't want to say in excess, but you do it consistently. Um, but it makes adherence you know, to a diet more difficult. So what I've seen with my own clients is one of the best and most effective ways to help them with fat loss is to either minimize or completely eliminate alcohol during that phase in and of itself. And this isn't to say that everyone needs to eliminate it, but if improving, you know, if this person's key goal right now in the phase that they're in is improving their body composition, their fitness and their health through, you know, fat loss through this fat loss phase, then you need to make it a priority to minimize your alcohol intake because it can have deleterious effects, maybe not in the isolated moment of doing it once in a blue moon, once a month. But if you are to do it over time, it's as with anything, these negative things compound over time. Yeah. It's, it, it sounds like people maybe overthink it in terms of like, they're thinking too like short term with it. When again, like you said, energy balance over time is, is going to be the most important, uh, thing there. But I, I, I agree. I think that no matter what, if you're in a deficit and you're trying to like drink a bunch of alcohol, you're, I mean, you're fighting a losing battle there anyway. So I have another question by, uh, 
All right, so we have two people. One person gets super hammered. The other person stays sober. They take the same amount of calories. They both lay in bed for the next 36 hours. Just like the clone, right? They're, they're the same person, just two different days, let's say. Does the person that got super hammered lose the exact same amount of fat or more fat over those next 36 hours laying in bed? They're both in the same deficit, same calorie intake versus the person that didn't. And that's a great question. I honestly don't know because I, I'm unsure if there's ever been studies done on alcohol <laughs> metabolism and resting energy expenditure, meaning how much you would burn in sleep and, and laying at rest. Honestly, you know, it might be a toss up. They probably would just equate, you know, it's, it's a short term. Now, if we were to extrapolate that over like seven, you know, say a week or a month where they were in, were in bed rest, what we do know from bed rest studies, which I find extremely, you know, this is one of my arguments or, or one of my, um, my reinforcements for some of my clients that have a really low step count. We see that when we do immobilization studies or bed rest studies where they, they really substantially lower the amount of steps per day from say like seven or 8,000 to under 2000, we see rates of muscle protein synthesis drop, but also we see that from alcohol consumption over the long term. So if someone was to do that multiple times over, they're going to lower the rates of muscle protein synthesis. So they might lose the same weight, but the, the quality of that weight would probably be different, to be honest with you. So they probably lose more muscle and less fat as compared to the other person that didn't drink the alcohol and just stayed in bed rest and consumed the same calories. And they were able to stimulate muscle protein synthesis with their protein-containing meals more. Because we do see actually in post-workout studies this is with alcohol consumption and it's with a, an egregious amount of alcohol. It's like 10 drinks or something that it blunts some of the effect of like a, a post-workout shake. Interesting. Cool. Brandon, I know you have a hard cutoff coming up here. We should probably yeah. wrap it up here. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, let me hit this one question. Cause this had me, oh. I, I really want to hear your guys' feedback on this. Um, this was, Someone asked me uh, a question that honestly, it was something that at first it kind of stumped me and it was in the shower that I actually came with what I believe to be a theory about it. But he asked, why does protein have such a higher thermic effect than fats and carbs? And he said, besides like the digestion aspect, because that was the first thing I'm thinking. So when we think about the thermic effect of feeding, we always just extrapolate that out to it's being... Um, the process of digestion and assimilation of a nutrient that causes this different thermic effect of feeding. So, you know, most, you know, so most would just assume that protein has the highest thermic effect of feeding just due to being more difficult to digest and assimilate than carbs and fats. And that would go along with alcohol. Alcohol is more uh, difficult for our body to ingest and digest than carbs and fats. So it does have a higher thermic effect, like I mentioned. But when I started to think about this, I really think this is only part of the equation. And, and this is, I'm putting this out there. This is a theory that I have based on some research that I've seen or I've heard over the years, but I've never heard someone actually approach this topic. So I am throwing out some theory there. I'm going to be a hundred percent honest and I'm not sure if, if everything is reinforced, but I, I think when you guys hear it, I want to hear your feedback. So I think this also has to do with how nutrients are stored as well. So we know that we can easily store fat, which has the, the lowest thermic effect at zero to 3% because it can easily be stored in adipose tissue. And we literally have an unlimited amount of adipose tissue. Think about it. If you ever watch like my 600 pound life, like they have endless stores of adipose tissue. And one thing with adipose tissue is that we can go through hyper, uh, fat cell hyperplasia or uh, fat cell hypertrophy, meaning our fat cells can get larger or they could split off. Like we've done podcasts, both actually all three of us have done podcasts on me speaking about the fact that you could add new fat cells after a diet. You can essentially go through hyperplasia and add new fat cells when you overfeed readily after a diet. And so fat has an unlimited storage capacity. Then we know carbohydrates have storage capacity in your, your muscle, in muscle glycogen, in liver glycogen, and there's a pretty readily amount 
of um, storage capacity in that. But we also know that we don't have a readily available storage mechanism for protein besides muscle, which is expensive not only to build, but it takes more energy to incorporate the protein that we ingest into protein, like into actual muscle tissue. And I've actually seen extrapolations where if you were to gain 25 pounds of tissue in a year, it roughly comes out to your body reincorporating one gram of protein per day. So think about it. You could be eating 300 grams of protein per day, which is, um, you know, if that's what you were eating, but in terms of muscle protein turnover, so the amount that we ingest, synthesize, and then also um, burn in terms of muscle protein breakdown, most estimates show that it's about 300 grams per day that we turn over. That doesn't mean that that's what we ingest, but that's what our body goes through. But we only, if we're gaining 25 pounds of muscle, which most people aren't doing, especially no one in the advanced level is, that's only one gram per day. So eating you know, protein, it's a really expensive process. So I feel like that burns a lot of energy. And then also we know that eating protein stimulates muscle protein synthesis, which is an energy expensive process in and of itself and burns a ton of ATP. So a ton of our energy. So, you know, that was kind of my theory behind it. And also what kind of reinforced this was, I know Don Lehman's lab, which is actually where Lane Norton got his, uh, his uh, PhD in. He has some research on the anabolic effects of a meal, of protein in a meal, and shows that the actual anabolic effect only lasts two to 2.5 to three hours, but leucine and mTOR, so there's, you know, leucine obviously being the number one stimulator of mTOR, they actually stay activated past that for about four to five hours. So I, when I was thinking about this, you know, how he describes it is that there's this mismatch between how long we stay anabolic, essentially, from actual protein ingestion, and then how long these metabolites stay active in our bloodstream. And what he had come to in, in one of his studies or what he theorized in one of his studies was that, you know, essentially it was because the body can't keep up with energy for that long. Because we would, if, if we were able to keep up with energy production for five hours of staying in an anabolic state post, post like a protein ingestion, that would even burn even more. So the whole thing with thermic effect, I think it's coming down to, yes, it's harder to digest and assimilate the nitrogen content. It's the only molecule, you know, everything else is carbon-based, you know, it's the only uh, macronutrient that's bringing carb, uh, nitrogen into the system. So it's harder to digest and assimilate, but also it's harder to incorporate into muscle tissue, which we know we can build fat tissue really easily. It's so much easier to gain fat than it is to gain muscle. And then also the protein synthesis effect. So I appreciate this person uh, throwing out that answer that, that question to me, because it really made me think, but I would love to hear your guys' thoughts on it. Yeah. I mean, I, I honestly wouldn't have any other reason. I mean, the only thing I could think of on top of that would be it costs, it, you have to chew a little bit more, but I feel like that's going to be minuscule in terms of like how many calories you're actually going to burn. Like that's, that's my addition to it. Yeah, I thought that was a very interesting question. Also, past, past like it's takes longer for your body to digest, and then muscle protein synthesis was the next thing that came to mind. But then I realized it's weird that I haven't thought deeper into that before. So I did not come up with a complex theory like you did, Brandon. I feel like you're like our smart dad in this conversation. But um, <laughs> I, fully- I really appreciated that question because I initially responded to him and I said, "Well, you know, it just takes more to digest and assimilate." And he goes, "Yeah, but." is it really taking like 27% more than, than fats? And it really got me thinking. He's like, do you, do you, do you know of any other reason besides that? And I, I honestly, I said, no, but I'm going to think about it. I'm going to think on it. And then I was in the shower before we got on here. And I just, you know, started thinking about some of the mechanistic research I've looked into on protein synthesis and some of the researchers. And that's kind of where I've come to. Doesn't mean it's hundred percent factual, but that's what I would say, you know, in terms, you know, we know factually it takes more energy to build muscle than it does to, to build body fat or to gain body fat. So it makes sense. I love it. 
Cool. This has been great, guys. Um, we appreciate all the questions. I know we still have a couple more to get through, so we'll have to do another one of these in the future. Hell yeah. I think this was a successful roundtable, so let's definitely uh, get another one on the schedule. Perfect. And we will catch you all soon. Thank you, everybody, for listening.